You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, I'm glad you are with us this morning. We're going to continue, as Jake said, through Exodus. If you've got a Bible with you, if you've got the Bible on your phone and you want to open it up or the notes section in the app, you can do so. We're actually going to start very briefly in Exodus chapter 5 this morning, Exodus chapter 5, but we will spend most of our time and we will look at a lot of scripture this morning in chapters uh, 7 through uh, 11, 7 through 11. So we'll read a lot in there. We won't read it all, uh, but uh, my goal for us, my hope, and my prayer this morning uh, really is that the Word of God just washes over us and washes through us and gets inside of us from our heads down into our hearts as we look at um, God's encounter with Moses, as Moses kind of calls the Lord out and God says, okay, let's do this. Now, uh, let me let you know this by uh, an aside, by way of aside. I'm always here after the message, right? I come down here, I'm hanging out. So if you want to talk to me, if you've got questions about the message, if God is doing something um, in your life, I, I'm always here. You may have to wait a little while. And if you're, uh, you know, if you're a regular, you're a member, and you're coming to tell me a funny story you heard about tires or something, if you could hang out. Um, kind of around until other people done, that would be awesome. I want to remind us, uh, using a quote from Philip Ryken, who has a phenomenal, large, very large uh, commentary on Exodus, just what we're, what we're doing going through this book from, uh, from a high level. Ryken says, more than anything, the book of Exodus is an encounter with the character of God. It is a celebration of God's mercy Justice, holiness, and faithfulness, despite the persistent unfaithfulness of his people. That's good news for us this morning. His sovereign intervention and covenantal love are seen in the deliverance of his chosen people from slavery in Egypt, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and the construction of God's dwelling place on earth, anticipating the greater glory to be revealed in the Redeemer to come. That's, a, that's a, a, an excellent summary of the book of Exodus from a 30,000-foot level. Now, when it comes to the plagues, very interesting, very intriguing. They ratchet up in intensity as they go. If you study them carefully, they're really given in three sets of three, and then one final one where uh, one, four, and seven uh, kind of start the same way, and then three, six, and nine kind of end the same way. So uh, the writer of Exodus, following the prompting of God's Spirit, knows exactly uh, what he's doing in laying out these plagues for us to watch as God moves on behalf of his people. But let's look back and just remember Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, because the plagues are God's answer here. Chapter 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, 
and I will not let Israel go. This is a potent question, and God's about to answer it for Pharaoh, but I suggest to you that it is a potent, central question today. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Tell me there's not places in your life where you struggle with this. Who is the Lord that I might obey him? We have entire denominations splitting now over this question when it comes to the teaching and the truth of Scripture. Who is the Lord that we should obey him around this aspect of our lives? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God is about to answer that for Pharaoh, for Egypt, for the Israelites, for his people who knew very, very little about him. They were slaves in a foreign land, enculturated and indoctrinated by that land and the gods of that land. Now, um, before we get in and I share with you uh, the purposes stated in Exodus for the plagues, there are five specific purposes that we find throughout Exodus for why God sends the plagues. And so those of us who may struggle with this issue, it's important that you know and you hear God's reasoning. This is why I'm moving in this way. Now, we don't always get that from God, so it's nice when he shares. This is why I'm moving this way. Before we look at those purposes and then move into Exodus 7 and following, let me take just a minute to pray for us pastorally, for us, for our world, for all that's going on. Let's I pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning in your name, we gather hopefully hungry. God, we certainly gather needy. Speak to us. God, remind us of your great love and mercy. Remind us of the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind us, God, that everything we hunger for Everything we look for, everything we need is found in you and you alone. God, this morning in our community and extended community, we pray for Lake and Riley and her family. God, with a tragic murder of an innocent young woman just out for a run. God, be present with them. God, we pray that you would awaken our government our officials, our administration to their God-ordained responsibility to provide order and security for people as is the role of government seen in Scripture. God, we pray for countries around the world this morning that are wrestling with unrest, hunger, growing famine. God, we pray for the Democratic Republic of Congo, for Ethiopia, for Somalia, for Niger, for Mali, for Yemen. God, for so many countries that right now this morning are on the very edge of the kind of famine that will see millions lose their lives. God, we pray as a nation and as a gathering of Christian people, hugely blessed, used to affluence and abundance, and comfort, that you would awaken in us a concern for those around the world who know neither comfort nor abundance. 
God, awaken us to our responsibility. God, we love you. We commit this time to you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me share with you, just walk with you very briefly, a series of of reasons why God goes about sending the plagues onto the nation of Egypt in growing intensity as he does. The first that he states is to judge Egypt and her gods. We find this in Exodus 7, Exodus 10, Exodus 12, Exodus 18. We find it recounted again in Numbers 33 and other places in Scripture to judge Egypt and her gods. Tony Morita said many people may protest against God's judgment and wrath. And that's very true. I have found as a pastor, as a pastor in in Baptist churches and evangelical churches, non-denominational churches, that we are quite comfortable with discussing God and his goodness and his glory and his love until we talk about the sovereign God who can't be controlled by us. And then we start to get uncomfortable. Like, hey, you're not a Calvinist, are you? No, I'm a student of Scripture. God will not be controlled by us. He won't be mocked by us. He won't be manipulated by us. Egyptians deserved judgment. And by the way, so did the Israelites. So does the worst sinner you know this morning, and so does you. So does you. That's horrible. So do you. And so do I. Those for whom the judgment of God passes over are those who by grace and faith in Jesus Christ are covered and found in him. Those who are God's covenant people. Marita goes on and says, this should not surprise us. Whenever people protest against God's judgment, it is a sign that they have minimized their sin and God's blazing holiness. I think we've really lost a handle on both biblically in our day. On our sin and the seriousness and totality of sin and on God's holiness. In a very succinct way, R.C. Sproul said, sin is cosmic treason. And in almost every nation in the world and throughout history, what has been the, the, the just punishment for treason? Death. Yes, death. I do want to caution us against one thing, though, and I I hear sometimes preachers do this, and I hear uh, really well-known preachers do this. They'll pick out a a corresponding God to go with each plague. Plague? Plague. Jake wants me to say plague, so I'm going to make sure I say plague this morning. Uh, A corresponding Egyptian God to go with each plague. The problem with that is there were over 100 Egyptian gods that were regularly used. Rarely was there one. There was Amun-Ra, the the god of sun, some gods of the Nile, but they were often used in different seasons at different times by different pockets of Egyptians. It's hard for us to think as a, a democratic republic in the way that we understand government and people, uh, really for just two or 300 years of human history, but if you think more tribally, like you see many nations in the Middle East still, this was what life was like in Egypt. It's very hard to pick a single God that a single plague was, plague, plague was against. Dang it, Jake. Um, 
And so let's stick with Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us a specific God that each plague is corresponding to. But I I will say this. It is very clear that God is exercising his sovereign authority and power over the gods of Egypt, over the idols of Egypt. And each plague would have had a corresponding number of idols and gods that were used in bits and pieces. Gary Schnitzer rather unfortunate last name, says it this way, the narrative itself makes no mention of any individual judgment being directed toward any particular God. Each of the cited passages concerning the plagues and the gods are generalizations. For historical and literary reasons, it seems better to take our clues for the meaning of the plagues from the biblical account itself. Could we agree on that this morning? And maybe you've done this, maybe you've taught a Sunday school class, maybe you've taught a Bible and you got really intrigued by that and you were reading some book, they're like, oh yeah, this plague, it countered this God and this plague, it countered this God. Just smile and roll on, but don't do that next time because there were too many gods related to each one of these areas to simply do that with one. First purpose, to judge Egypt and her God. Second, to compel Pharaoh to free The Israelites, Exodus 7 and 18, we know this. Three, to prove that God, Yahweh, is the only sovereign Lord of nature and history. Of nature and history, Exodus 7, Exodus 9, Exodus 10, Exodus 18. Among a people, an empire that would have seen Pharaoh, as the one who largely had control over this stuff, if anyone had control over the gods of nature and creation. God comes and dispels that. Fourth reason, to distinguish between Egypt and Israel and demonstrate that the Israelites were God's chosen people, Exodus 8, 11, and 12. You'll see this sometimes as we get into the plagues in just a minute, where a plague covers Egypt except the land of Goshen, where God's people were. And in the land of Goshen, the plagues and God's judgment didn't touch them. Finally, to display God's mighty power and proclaim his holy name. Exodus 9. Let me remind you of a couple of places we've been. Exodus 6. Exodus 6 verses 5 through 7. Say, moreover, I have heard the groaning. This is God speaking to Moses of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. There was a a, a missional reason in God's covenant love and action going back to demonstrate who he was as a redeeming God to his own people, but not just to them. If you remember Exodus 7, verses 3 through 5, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites 
out of it. We talked a few weeks ago about how God is a missional God. To be the people of God is to be a missional people. God has been advancing his kingdom and his witness and the gospel down through the centuries, throughout redemptive history. And we are recipients of that. Part of the reason we're called to go into our community, throughout our nation, and around the world is not simply that God commands it in some kind of um, stiff, legalistic way, but we've been recipients of this as well, if you will remember, I like to point this out in Acts 1.8 when Jesus says um, to those surrounding him that they will be his disciples. They will be his followers and his mouthpieces. And he lists this successively widening geographical area and then finally says to the ends of the earth. He's talking about us. Atlanta is 6,439 miles from Jerusalem. We were the ends of the earth Jesus is talking about in Acts 1.8. And it's happened and it's happening. And you and I have a responsibility to continue to carry the gospel to pockets and corners and peoples of the earth where they don't yet know his name. Or maybe they do. Much of the earth, most nations already have a gospel witness. But getting the gospel further out, resourcing and helping our brothers and sisters in Christ to be the church there is part of what it means to follow God. And churches typically will fall into trap when it comes to missions, right? Some of you have been around churches like this. Uh, On one hand, we don't want to be proud. You get those churches that, man, all they do is talk about how much money they send to missions. Well, whoop de freaking do You send a lot of money to missions that wasn't your money in the first place that God brought into you so that other people can do gospel work around the world. Good for you. We ought to be cautious about being more proud of who we are and who our church is and who our God is and what our God is doing. But also the other side is just being unengaged altogether, which honestly globally is where we've been as a church for a long, long time. I don't know how far back, but I'll say, when we talk of missions, it's not building a fellowship hall for another church in North Carolina. That's not missions. Building a porch for a church in Kentucky. We can call that a mission trip, and we can feel glad and take pictures and put it in our history. That's not what God is talking about when he talks about missions. God is serious about the growing understanding and glory of his name. Display his mighty power and proclaim his name. Now, last thing before we jump in and we roll right through these chapters. You'll often find people, sometimes we love to to spend more time arguing about what happens in the Bible than just learning it, right? And asking it what it teaches us about God. And people will, they'll bicker back and forth about whether God sort of uh, supernaturally outside of the universe just dropped in these plagues or if he, he worked somehow within the created order to bring these plagues on Egypt. Doesn't make me any difference either way. It's very clear that God is the one at work. He's the one at work in the succession and the order of the plagues. He's the one at work in the intensity of them. He's the one at work in the timing of them. So it matters not to me and it should not to you how God decides to do it. 
Let him be God. And don't, don't send me packets or articles on this, please. And whoever it is that keeps sending me the packet without your name on the six days creation stuff, I trash that. Just to save you time, I don't read that. I'm a grown-up, an educated grown-up. I, I know the arguments for six-day, 24-hour creation stuff, seven. I don't care. So I'm, that's just, that's totally free. I didn't intend to say that. But um, save you time and postage. I don't read anything without a name on it. Um, Ron Youngblood sums it up this way when he talks about this, this issue of how, how did God go about doing this? He says, although in nearly every case, each plague could have resulted from the effects of the preceding plagues on the basis of what we know about Egyptian geography, climate, and the like, and he's right. The details of the account make it clear that the God of miracles, the God who works outside as he, as he wills and pleases the consistent way in which creation is ordered, the God who gave Moses and Aaron the power to bend natural phenomena to accomplish his will was working out his purposes for his people in and through the sequence of events from beginning to end. Whatever the case, we insist that the disastrous plagues striking the Egyptians were subjected to supernatural heightening and split-second timing by the sovereign God of Israel who brought them about at just the right time and with just the right intensity. Now, with that said, let's jump in and look at Exodus chapter 7. We'll begin with verse 8. I'm going to read a good bit of scripture. I'll skip portions. I'm going to carry you along as we look at this. And then you'll see in a minute why you and I ought to be a little guarded against our rigid, modern, western, literalistic way of understanding everything from a translated text that we're reading. Verse 8, chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. If you know about ancient Egypt, they were fascinated with snakes. I know some of you are the same way, fascinated with snakes. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians. Uh, the word there, translated magicians, is the same word often used for, for priests, the priestly class in Egypt. So he gets, he gets all of his wizard workers uh, together, and they also did the same things by their secret arts. Now, you know Moses and Aaron must have been like, dang it. And that was our trump card. God didn't tell us this was going to happen. We throw our stick down, a, a snake pops out. They throw their stick down, a snake pops out. You're like, dog it, you know? <laughs> you don't know what to do. It's very clear, and we don't have explanations for this, whether, uh, whether it's some kind of magical trick, right? Whether it's illusion, or whether they in the providence of God are tapped into the powers of darkness and Satan himself. But we do know verse 12 follows verse 11. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yeah! I like that. That's my God. Turn your little sticks into snakes. I'm going to eat them. Get in my belly. It's what Aaron's staff said to the other staff snakes. I like that. 
And if you know Hebrew, you'll notice that Aaron's staff swallowed. That, that Hebrew word there translated swallow is the same word used in Exodus 14, 28 for what the sea does to Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. Swallows them up. A little foretaste of what is to come. I got to tell you, I don't like to lose, but I love to win. Some people are sore losers. I'm a sore winner. That's right. That's right. If I were Moses and Aaron, I'd have lost it right then. Yeah. Look at your snakes. You can't, can you? Because mine swallowed them. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. And so the plagues began. One, two, and three here. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So he says, go and warn him. Tell him what I'm about to do. I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand. If I was Moses, I'd be like, why does Aaron always get to do it? Just because I'm not a good speaker doesn't mean I can't hold a stick. Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. In other words, even on the physical idols. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. And the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Now, I will tell you, if you get stuck up on the magicians, don't worry. They're going to run out of juice in just a minute. But you know what they can't do? They can't clean up the water. The little secret arts can't undo what God has done. And it's hard to describe how significant this was. How many of you in here, I know it'll be most of you, were old enough to starkly remember September 11, 2001? Yeah. Yeah. Those of us who, who lived through that and lived through the financial aftermath... I think have an intuitive sense of how significant the lower end of Manhattan, Wall Street, the towers, how significant as a financial center they are to the United States, how central air travel is to us as a nation when it's grounded. To, to make the Nile unusable was to take the thing they were most proud of, and Egyptians were proud. They were powerful large, wealthy, educated, largely all due to the Nile. Certainly without the Nile, none of it would happen. And all of a sudden that's taken away. Verse five of chapter eight, we see the second plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, after a warning again to Pharaoh, stretch out your hand, Aaron, with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. 
But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now, you know Pharaoh would have been like, what are you doing? We don't need more frogs. You know, they're like, stand back, we've got this. Whoa! Probably trying to get rid of the frogs. But they don't get rid of the frogs. They make the frogs more intense. They multiply the frogs. There's, there's a kind of, of humor in here, a kind of sarcasm about what they can and cannot do. They can't get rid of the frogs. Moms, how many of you liked it when your kids brought things that are supposed to live outside inside? Anybody? Sharon has a real issue with that. Um, frogs, snakes, insects of various kinds that kids, especially boys, love to bring into the house, often simply to show mom, which brings me to great delight. We don't like this. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. And I will let your people go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. A little bit of bending there, seems like. Moses goes, he prays, the Lord answers. Verse 12, after Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. Softness of heart is developing in Moses. Because I'd have said, no. And the Lord did what Moses asked, and frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. You see this uh, inner tangled mixture of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart, and a simple observation made, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. See, what, what Pharaoh was doing, and you'll see this increasing, uh, increasing uh, succinctly here, is, is not repentance, but pain management. Repentance involves obedience on the other side a change of life, a willingness to, uh, to, to fight and to put to death with the help of the Lord our sin. Pain management is about crying out to God until things are easier. And then we go right back. Plague three, gnats. Gnats. Man, gnats are nasty. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff. Now, there's no warning here. No telling Pharaoh what's going to happen. Strike the dust to the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Verse 17, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Their battery pack was out. They couldn't do it anymore. Verse 19, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. Plague of flies, plague of flies. How many of you, how many of you grew up um, in a more rural setting? Anybody? Yeah. So gnats, flies, these things, like they, they don't, kill you, but they are unbelievably unpleasant when there's a lot of them 
around you. Gnats now go to flies. The Lord says to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh. Verse 21, if you don't let my people go, I'll send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. Any of you here in spring, I think it's spring, have to make those little homemade things to set out and try to catch the fruit flies or whatever those little things are. Maybe it's just our house and our kids hiding food everywhere. But when those things come into the house, it is super obnoxious and annoying. We catch a lot of them, not all of them. But there's no help here. Verse 22. But on that day, on the day that the Lord sends the plague of flies, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. God's saying, my flies are going to fly right up to here and then they're going to stop. That's the demilitarized zone in Goshen. There's to be no overflights happening there. They're going to stay over here. I'm at work, and I will not punish my people for your sin. Verse 24 tells us that the land was ruined by the flies. Verse 25, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Now, Pharaoh's starting to move a little, but he wants to control it. Yeah, go ahead. Go do your sacrifice stuff, but you've got to do it here. You can't leave the land. That's not good enough, Moses says. That's not what we're supposed to do. Verse 27, we've got to do what we're commanded to do. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Don't you love Pharaoh? I'll let you go, I guess, but you can't go very far. You don't determine how far we go. We go where God sends us. Uh, but also pray for me. Right? It's like your kids. I don't want to clean my room. I'm not going to be that. I'm sorry. I didn't do that. That was somebody else. Hey, can you give me some money? I'm going out with a friend. And we do it most of the time, don't we, parents? We're such suckers. Instead of saying, no, starve to death and go up in your room and be lonely and miserable. Now pray for me. Moses says, I'll pray for you. And then he gives Pharaoh a warning in verse 29. Let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer their sacrifices. And the Lord, or then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. The flies left, but this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Plague of livestock. Plague of livestock. They just keep getting a little more intense, a little more intense. Pharaoh gets a warning, says in verse 2, your livestock in the field, I'm going to send a plague on your horses, donkeys, camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Do you see the increasing cover and protection that God is giving his people? Even as judgment on a sinful people and sinful world come down. Verse 6, the next day the Lord did it. All 
the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Verse 7, plague of boil. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the furnace, this furnace, or one of these furnaces that, that Pharaoh and his people had you baking bricks in. There's irony and direct confrontation in this plague and judgment. And have Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. And festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. No warning. This is quick, direct, and to the point, like Tim Hawley. Just grabs some dust and throws it up in, in Pharaoh's presence. And boils break out everywhere. Jake was telling me that uh, he and Julie were out of town and there was a, a, a part on their fence or gate or something that Jake needed help fencing. And so he, he talked to Tim and Tim knew probably, I can't speak for Tim, but I'm going to, that it'd be a lot faster to do it without Jake's help. So while they were out of town, Tim came by and fixed it, sent a picture of it fixed to Jake and said, hey, I fixed this. You need to rake your leaves. <laughs> Those of you that know Tim, is there anything more Tim Holly than that? Hey, I fixed this for you. Deep down inside me, I love people. Rake your leaves, loser. This is the boils, very short. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Seventh plague, the plague of hail. The Lord said, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time, verse 14, chapter 9. I will send the full force of my plague against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Do you hear still God's heart? Do you hear the mercy? Do you hear the, the missional intent of God? Even in the mixture of these plagues with uh, a Pharaoh whose heart's not only been hardened by God, but hardened by himself and is simply just hard. God is saying, I'm doing this that you may know who I am. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This time tomorrow, verse 18, I'll send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. If you are a serious reader, you're going to get here and go, wait, what? What? Look back at verse 6. At the plague on the livestock. And the next day the Lord did it. All livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. In verse 19, they're told to tell the Egyptian people that you got to bring in your livestock from the field. Those that are left out in the field will die. I simply bring this up. I'm not going to undo this because you, you can't get rid of the tension, but to tell you, 
You need to be careful, people, church, brothers and sisters. When you read scripture through a modern, Western, literalistic view and then try to cram it down other people's throats and call them liberal if they don't understand the things the way that you do. Right? You understand? You with me? Verse 6 says all the livestock are dead. And then verse 19 says, oh, no, they're not. But those that aren't, if you don't bring them in, they will be. Verse 23, when Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the field, both people and animals that beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. God protects the people again. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He sinned again. Moses had interceded on behalf of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Eighth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the hearts of the officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among you that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. We have always been a people called to teach ourselves the great story through repetition over and over and over. That's part of why we do catechism. Look at verse five. Verse five, as God sends these locusts, they will devour the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. Some of you know this. Some of you grew up in a different time in the world. I've certainly seen this in my family and on our land where grasshoppers could be so bad in the summer that they would devour almost everything that you had. Everything that you had. Food that cattle would normally graze on were eaten. They'll devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your field. Wait, what? What's happening here? Look back at chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the field, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the field and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen. Do you hear, do you just... I want you to hear what I'm saying about how you handle Scripture and how you use it. And don't leave here and say, Pastor Matt doesn't believe Scripture's true. He doesn't believe it's real. No, I absolutely believe it. I just believe it. We ought to approach it with a sense of humility and receptivity. Because verses 25 and 26 tells us God's already stripped everything. He's beat down everything growing in the fields and he stripped every single tree. And then again, the locusts come. And something apparently was left. Verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Speaking of Moses, let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not 
yet realize that Egypt is ruined? I immediately, as, as one who loves to study World War II history, began to think about um, most of the generals in the German army in World War II wanting to say the very same thing to, to Hitler. Why don't you just concede? Why don't we stop this? Our entire nation and the world is in ruin. Pharaoh says, hey, you guys can go, verse 8, but tell me he'll be going. Moses answered, we'll go with our young and our old, our sons, our daughters, with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Verse 11, Pharaoh says, no, no. Have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. That's not what he's been asking for. But again, Pharaoh's trying to control this. Pharaoh's, uh, he's, he's opting for partial obedience to what has been commanded for him to do. Verse 13. Moses stretches out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all day and all night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts from wherever they were. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. This is the God of history speaking. I did this. I did this once and for all for a specific purpose. Everything growing in the fields and, and, the tr- and the fruit on the trees, verse 15. So not only did trees have some leaves left, they had fruit on them. Nothing green remained on the tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned. First time Pharaoh says this, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. But he doesn't, you notice Pharaoh doesn't go to the Lord. He doesn't say to the Lord, I've sinned against you and against your servants and your people. Verse 17, now forgive my sin once more and pray. Moses can't forgive sin. Your Uncle Herbert can't forgive sin. Your grandmama can't even forgive sin. Only God forgives sin. But Pharaoh doesn't ask the Lord to forgive him. Take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh, prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. God using his created order as he pleases now. Now the ninth and final plague that we'll cover this morning, the plague of darkness. Again, no warning. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Darkness that can be felt. Isn't that a stunning statement? Darkness that can be felt. Some of you know what Scripture's talking about here. Maybe you've never been in a part of the world where it's so dark it can be felt, but maybe you've felt darkness come over you that was so dark it could be felt. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Phenomenal, isn't it? God can command even darkness and light to go to a certain point. Now, did the Israelites have light because they deserved it? 
No, no, they didn't. They had light because they were God's covenant people. Because he had not walked away from them in their unfaithfulness and sin. God was still there. Verse 24, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. Still controlling. Just doesn't get it. He won't won't relent. Verse 25, Moses said, you have to allow us to have sacrifices and bird offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. Now listen to this. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. You hear the beauty of that? They didn't know the Lord right now. They didn't know what he commanded, what he demanded, what they were to do. They're moving in faith. They don't even know what it's going to be like once they get out. But he says, we got to bring everything because we don't know what the Lord's going to ask for. But again, verse 27, the Lord, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wasn't willing to let them go. Last few verses, chapter 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Now look at our sovereign God at work among his people. The Lord had made Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Does this seem normal? That the guy and his brother, who, who are the catalyst for all this that you've been experiencing, and then the, the favored slaves over here in Goshen, who haven't been experiencing what you've been experiencing, are now favored by your hearts. That's like having a teacher that slaps you every time you walk into the class and you go, I just really like her. There's something about her. I find myself highly favoring her or him. Verse 4, Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Some of you have sons. What we're hearing now predicted is the worst judgment brought in human history. Every first son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who's at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or will ever be again. God can say that because he's the God of history. And this is unique, historic judgment with redemptive purposes. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all your people who follow you after I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. It's an interesting phrase. We don't know why, 
But very likely, Moses is just, he's, he's at his wit's end with Pharaoh. Why this judgment has to come. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all the wonders before Pharaoh. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Can I just tell you this morning before we're too hard on them, we, we are them. We are the Egyptians worshiping tiny gods that we hope will bring us comfort, security, peace, affluence, power. And some of us get that. But is it enough, really? I mean, it is, imagine I have a great career, great wife, great kids who marry great people. I retire early and can do what I want. Is that it? Man, is that it? We're not just the Egyptians. We're him. We're Pharaoh giving a, a nod to God as long as he doesn't get too deep into our business. We like the God who saves. We like the God who gives us heaven. We like the God who helps us when we're in trouble. We do not like the God who directs our values, our beliefs, our understanding of marriage, our finances, our values. We're Pharaoh bargaining with God, wanting to go halfway in obedience, practicing more pain management than repentance. Romans 125 says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creation rather than creator. Who, who in here, including me, is not guilty of liking the creation at times more than the creator? Of wanting God's stuff more than we want God. A couple of passages here and we'll be done. Psalm 96, 4 through 6 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idle. All the gods of the nation. Christianity isn't Western. It's global. Are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. This is what he was demonstrating to the Egyptians and to his own people. Nehemiah 9, 6 says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You know, there's a new uh, documentary out on the dynasty of the Patriots, New England Patriots. They interview Tom Brady, but it makes me think back. You can see a lot of interviews of Brady, obviously, across the years as the band begins making their way back up here and preparing to lead us in a time of response, reflection. I just want to remind you of a, a 2005 interview on 60 Minutes. If you're under 40, 60 Minutes is that show that your grandparents love. The host is sitting there with three-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady. This is before he married his Victoria's Secret supermodel wife, who then divorced him later because she found out he loved football more than her. I don't know why she divorced him. I shouldn't have said that. Who divorces Tom Brady? Giselle does. And he says, you're the most, the, the interviewer says, you're the most eligible bachelor in America. And Tom said, well, it's very flattering, but at the same time, it doesn't 
help me sleep any better at night because of it. And the guy goes on and he says, you've got three Super Bowl rings. Which ring do you like best? Reminds me of the media when Obama came in like, do you like the color of the carpet? Which window is your favorite to look out of? Which Super Bowl ring do you like the best? Which one is your favorite? Brady smiled and said, the next one. And then he thought reflectively and he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And think there's still something greater out there for me. Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. You've reached your goal, your dream, your life is what you wanted. But me, I thank God, it's got to be more than this. There has to be something more. And then in a moment that still makes me sad, the interviewer says, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Let me tell you the Apostle Paul's answer to that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols. Church, this is repentance. All of us are worshiping something. Many of us post-conversion, held by the grace of and the tenacity of God are still struggling with worshiping tiny idols of looks and influence and power and a certain kind of house and a certain kind of car and being a social media family and on and on it goes. They themselves report how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's what it is. That's who it is. Nothing else will ever be enough for you. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that for those who are in Christ, your judgment passes over us, as we'll see next week. For there is, as Romans 8 says, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, reveal our idols to us this morning. God, even as we prepare to receive offering and the ushers make their way to their positions, God, we ought not give or even think about this time without reflecting on what it is our hearts most love, what it is we most seek to control, what it is that makes us angry the quickest and what that says about our value and what we cherish. God, stir in us now. Lead us to repentance. Renew us in Christ Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.